would you all stand up? And then Emmeline, if you can come up, uh, she, this is my daughter, and she is going to read our passage today. Hebrews 7, tw- Hebrews seven twenty three through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented, prevented by, by death from counting and continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he is all he always lives to make inter, intercession intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such ha, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from the sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those for high priests to offer sacrifices daily for for those of his own sins and and then for those of the people's sins. He did not he did this once for all he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakest in their weakness. Wait, weaknesses? Weaknesses as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. God, may God bless the reading of this word. You may be seated. Great work, Emmy. So uh, this summer, we've got all of our kids in here. Uh, Russell and I are going to try to continue to include our kids um, in what we get to do on a Sunday morning. Uh, Kid City operates usually across the courtyard. So if you come in here and you come in here at like 10.15, church actually starts at 10. But anyway, um, if you come in at 10.15, you actually won't see a lot of the kids because they will already have been dropped off. And so you kind of get to have an existence of church. Our church doesn't have a lot of kids. In fact, it does you just don't see them. So for the summer, they will be here with us. Uh, kids, if you are present and you didn't get a clipboard, ask your parent to help you go get a clipboard. You can take notes during this time and you can color. And then at the end of service, you can turn that in for a snack and a goodie. Adults, you already had coffee. I am offering you nothing else. So um, we are excited that everybody is here. The other month, uh, Captain Marvel came out. Um, I am a, I'm really a Marvel nut. And, and so we went, Megan and I went and we saw Captain Marvel and the movie was fun. It was enjoyable. Brie Larson, yeah. But the movie solidified, if you had any doubts, it solidified Sam Jackson as an American treasure. He is just the best. And so watching it, it was, it was fun to watch. And it was really enjoyable. And then it gets to the end of the movie. And the movie finishes. And, you know, credits roll, end scene rolls. And then Megan looks over at me and says, okay, so how long do I have to wait till Endgame comes out? And I was like, it's only a few months. It's actually only a few weeks. It's coming. She's like, okay, good. Because Captain Marvel, as well as all the rest of the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe they have been building to a final something. They have, they've all been pieces that have been pointing 
to a bigger, completer end. And it happened in Endgame. Now, technically, it's supposed to happen in the next Spider-Man movie, but, you know, that's just for nerds to argue about like me. So, uh, but all of these movies were pointing to something that was coming. And everybody looked at those movies and they said, those movies were good, but I really can't wait until it kind of reaches it in, its end. Here at Neartown, in the church at large throughout history, we actually believe what God tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. He says that God has spoken to us at many times and in many ways. He is at work across cultures and contexts. He has revealed himself to people. Now today, we're going to cover one such people through Hebrews uh, in the people of Israel. And we're going to say, okay, what are the breadcrumbs that God has left for Israel to see this is just a piece, but there's something coming that's later, something that will be fulfilled in this Messiah. Keep looking, keep hoping, keep wanting and waiting for that because he's coming. Don't get stuck on this one thing. Keep hoping. Just like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, waiting for that completion of the plot line, Israel was looking and saying, where is God moving and pointing us to himself? So today, we're going to take a look at their culture. We're going to see who it's pointing to. We'll take a moment to talk about our culture. And we're going to ask, like they did, is the person that it all pointed to worth it? Is he worth it? Okay, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, this is a big old chunk of scripture to tear through today. And so I ask for your wisdom in my presentation and being able to allow us to dive into it. Lord, let us see you clearly. Spirit, move in this room. Open our hearts so that we get to see you. Not me. We get to see you. And we enjoy you for all you are. Thank you, Lord, for being present and listening and caring to even hear from us. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as a refresher, we are going through the book of Hebrews here at Neartown Church. This is our greater series. If you've missed any of the sermons, don't worry. You can go online, uh, podcast.neartownchurch.org, and catch up on those. Now, you're sitting here, so that does you no good right now. So allow me to do a very quick recap. Um, The audience of the book of Hebrews, they are recently converted Jewish people that have seen Jesus as the Messiah. They have become worshipers of Jesus. And since they have become worshipers of Jesus, they've stepped away from a previous way of life that they had, and they were receiving persecution because of it. So they had become worshipers of Jesus, and in light of their decision, their lives had gotten immensely harder. They were becoming persecuted. That's a very big word for they were getting beat up. They were getting harassed. They were being treated terribly by everyone purely because they worship Jesus. And so now these new Christians are saying, is this worth it? Is he worth it? 
maybe I should bounce and just go back to the previous way of life because it wasn't this bad. I'm getting persecuted because of this. How do I stop getting persecuted? Well, stop saying I believe it. And so they're, they're wondering, should we walk away from this? And the author of Hebrews is writing them and saying, don't walk away. Don't walk away. Consider him. Consider him. And so he's been walking through and he's been finding things that are a part of the Jewish history and saying, remember this? Remember how much you love this? This isn't it. It's about Jesus. Remember this one thing? Yeah, Jesus is greater than that. Remember this other thing? Yeah, Jesus is greater than that. So he's been doing this week after week after week. So if you want to open your Bibles or your, you know, Hebrews, what is this? Our journal notes, scripture journals. If you want to open this to Hebrews chapter 7, Amy will have the verses above me on the screen so you can follow along. We will be flying through Hebrews chapter 7 and chapter 8 today as we consider him. So our author, continuing on this route of bringing up cultural highlights, he is going to go back to the most famous priest that Israel has ever known, Melchizedek. No, I didn't sneeze. No, it is not a disease. And no, I am not referring to the Haitian-American R&B duo, Melchizedek. So, um, who is Melchizedek? Uh, I love that everybody just loves that so much. Um, they're real. That's actually Wyclef Jean's brother and sister. So, uh, Melchizedek. Well, here's how he comes into the scene. Back in Genesis, in the time of Abram, or Abraham, uh, there are four kings in the area where his nephew Lot lived, and there are five kings in the surrounding areas. And those five kings said, we want to capture and take over the land of the four kings. So five against four, five, one. They took Lot, and then they captured him and took him away. Word got to Abram, Abraham, and they said, hey, somebody took Lot and all of his people and all of his stuff. And so Abram rallies the troops, 318 men, I think Genesis says, And he grabs them and says, we got to go get Lot back. It's a rescue effort. Well, God then delivers Lot and his people to Abram. So now Abram and his people beat the five kings and all of those people. And so he beats them all. He gets Lot. And he now has the spoils of all of these kings. And so Abram walks away from the victory. And as he is coming away with all the spoils and all the goods, he comes to Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is, well, there's really not a lot known about Melchizedek. We have this brief little story in Genesis. We have a mention of him in Psalms, one Psalm, Psalm 110. And then we have this part in Hebrews. But this is all we get about Melchizedek. So I'm going to update you on who he is from these three brief accounts. What do we know about him? Well, he is the king of Salem. So, Melchizedek is a king. His name actually means, if you break down king of Salem, he is the king of righteousness or the king of peace. When he is introduced, he is introduced as priest of God most high or priest of the most high God. So, he is God's priest, 
there at that time. But he has been appointed by God to that position. What do we know about that? Well, he comes out. We know that he is the priest. Abraham sees him, and Abraham says, this guy is greater than I am. He represents the Lord, and I am going to take one-tenth of all the goodies, all the spoil that I have had from this retakeover of Lot and his people, and I am going to tithe it to Melchizedek. I'm going to tithe it to the Lord. Well, in doing so, we look at Melchizedek and we say, well, what, what do we know about him? Well, again, we have a very limited description of him. We don't know his lineage. We, we don't know who his father and mother were. And when you're talking about the priesthood, that's like most important thing number one. You need to know where they came from. Nobody just gets to walk on the scene and say, I am amazing. I represent the Lord. You should usually watch out for those people. So, um, but he has been appointed by God in this position. His lineage is not known. His age isn't known. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know when he came on the scene. And according to the Genesis account, we don't know when he died. We get this little sliver of a story. And the author of Hebrews is saying, the author of Genesis didn't make this a big deal. It's actually almost intentionally that we don't know when he started. We don't know when he ended. We don't know where he came from. And we don't know really his like authority structure. How he came to power and how he came to have the authority as priest of the God most high. But we have him. There is Melchizedek. And so through the actions of Abraham, we see that Melchizedek is greater. Now, for us, this isn't landing as much. Abraham is just another name as Melchizedek, is just another name as Jacob. And, but Abraham was a forefather. He is one of the top dogs in all of Israel's history. If we're going to look back at American history, it would be as if George Washington came off the battlefield and then said, I am actually going to choose, after winning said battle, to give some of these spoils to one person. Everybody would say, well, who's that guy? Because George Washington's a big deal, and if he said this other guy's a bigger deal that I am going to now tithe, we are going to want to take note of that other guy. So, over here we have Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and we know that because of Abraham's actions. He gave him a tenth of the spoils. So, we know Abraham is lesser. We know Melchizedek is greater. We know these very few things about Melchizedek. So, if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Abraham was one of the top dogs in Israel that everybody looked to, everybody talked about, everybody revered, all that Abraham said didn't was... Well, if Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, then that means everybody that came after Abraham also was lesser than Melchizedek. Or this position that he had. The author of Hebrews even goes as far to say Abraham and Aaron and Moses and all of the people that came through him, that whole system of the Old Covenant, the law, that priesthood, all of the Old Testament, well, that actually, they paid tribute to Melchizedek 
through Abraham. So there is a structure that has been set up. Melchizedek, greater. Abraham and all those who came after, lesser than. This will make sense. Just roll with me. Okay? So take this thought. We've got Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is saying, this guy is a really big deal, and Jesus came in his order. David, Psalm 110, I think it's verse 4. We see it here in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 17 and 21. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, we've learned that Melchizedek was a king, Melchizedek was a priest, his lineage was not known, his age was not known, his authority was unknown as far as verifying it, and yet David prophesies that there will be another who comes after, who serves in that line, not the line of Abraham, not the line of Aaron and Levi, but from a different line. This priest will be greater than this line. Okay, so now, hold that thought, because the author of Hebrews then goes a different track and says, we've already talked about Melchizedek, but I also want to talk about the way that you thought that you were made right. So, the author talks about the old covenant, that was the agreement between God and the people of Israel. Uh, He refers to that as the law. He also refers to it, again, the people who serve in the law, the priesthood, those who serve the Lord in that law. He kind of uses them interchangeably in this passage. Okay? So, so the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, so you've got this Melchizedek. You've all heard about him. You don't know a lot. Let me color in a little bit about how amazing and almost mythical this man is. But now I want you to look at the law, the way that you thought you were made right. Let's take a look at that. So, he brings this up. He says, what should we say about the law? In the immortal words of Dwight Schrute, "Mm, good, not great. So, perfection, it says in verses 11, so chapter 7, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 19, chapter 7, verse 28. Perfection was not attainable through the law through the old covenant. Now the word here, I had this is like as, as deep Greek wise as I went. I tried to ask people who were way smarter than I was. Okay, the word is teleosis. Teleosis. This is the word that has been translated in our ESV, which we typically read from every week, as perfect. We were not able to be made perfect or reach perfection through the law. Now, this has two senses to it. The one, which I think we in America and in Western culture, we think, when we hear perfect, we think without blemish, without error. You know, you got a perfect score. 10 out of 10, you got a 100, there is no error, you did everything right. Well, it becomes almost, when we hear perfection, limited to a moral place. Perfect. The law couldn't make you perfect. But there's a different sense that is also not hidden, but is a part of this word. And that is that the law was not able to make one whole. 
the law was not able to bring to completion the plan that was set in place. The law was not able to get one to the final goal that God had in the beginning when he made us in his image and was going to bring that image to completion. The law was never able to do that. So I want to encourage you, when you read this and see it, don't just land on perfection being a moral attribute, but think also in this aspect of wholeness, of completion. The law wasn't able to finish the story. It just wasn't. It was not able to bring it to that final goal. So what was the law? Well, it was in fact weak and useless. As it says in chapter 7, verse 18, it couldn't do the thing that we as humans needed it to do. It just couldn't do it. Well, how else was it weak and useless? Well, the law had priests serving. These priests were unable to continue on forever in office because they died. You can't live forever. So because you and I can't live forever, and these priests were humans like us, they could not continue on in the office and serve as priests. These priests, like us, were sinners. They were broken. They were incomplete. They were stained. And so when the priests came to serve, the very first sacrifice they had to offer was for themselves because they were sinners. And then after they made that sacrifice, then they could make the sacrifice for the rest of the people. But they always had to do that first sacrifice for themselves because they were not clean. They, these priests, served in a tent or in a tabernacle or a temple that was a shadow of something much greater. They served in the shadow that was pointing to something someday that was real, that was true. They only served in the shadow. The covenant or the law they operated with, was faulty. It's really strong words in chapter 8. Let me actually pick up. I wanted to read chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, out loud. Because this law that was shown to be faulty, that was shown to be useless, and, and the author of Hebrews isn't just like trying to like tear it down and call it names and throw dirt at it. He's trying to bring it up and say, everything that you came away from, let's take a look at it. Before you run back to it and say, I won't be persecuted if I go back to it, what are you running back to? For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, the old covenant, on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So when 
looking at the Old Covenant, the author of Hebrews is saying, y'all, let's slow down and let's take a look at it. It's broken. It can't do what you need it to do. It never was meant to do it. Don't run back to it. It is inferior. There is something that is greater. And this is being read from Jeremiah, saying someday, in Jeremiah there was this prophecy, there is going to be this new covenant, there's going to be this new thing, and it is going to be better. And it is going to be fuller. It's coming. The author has spent so much effort touching base with kind of the first levels of these comparisons. Again, the Old Covenant and Melchizedek. He wants to at least touch on those, making sure everybody's got a good understanding. Okay, do you understand Melchizedek, this mythical man, and and all that he brought to the table? Do you understand the Old Covenant and how it was broken and how it, like Melchizedek, was pointing in the future to something that's going to come? Look to that future thing. It has hope. It is worth your time. It is worth your heart. One of the verses that I kept reading this week that almost got me in tears multiple times. We go back to uh, chapter 7, verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Again, it could not reach that completion that we were all hoping and wanting. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The author of Hebrews says, okay, are you looking here at the Old Covenant? Do you have that in mind? Do you see it? Do you understand that Melchizedek was pointing to something better, to something greater, to someone that is going to be in his lineage? He's going to follow and serve like a priest? Do you have those in mind? Good. Because Jesus is that person. Jesus is the one that all of these things in Jewish history have been pointing to. It is all solved in Jesus Christ. Now, I said at the beginning, he's writing this to encourage them and say, consider him. Sometimes when Russell and I, we sit down with passages, I mean, God is constantly revealing himself to us through scripture and us being all of us, you, me, everybody who reads scripture, God is telling us about himself. But I was blown away by how much God was telling us about himself in chapters 7 and 8. So allow this tidal wave to hit you. This is what we learn about Jesus here in Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. Verse 3, he can serve forever. Verse 12, he can fulfill, he can change, he can bring about a new law. Verse 14, he's of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. He was not a part of this system. He was a priest from a different system. He is a priest by the power of his indestructible life. Jesus' life 
stands apart. Not because somebody says, well, you just were born into this family, and now you are a priest. His life proved his worth. He is the better hope that was sought after. That's 19, I just read that. He's the means by which we draw near to God. He doesn't just tell us about God. He brings us into God's presence. He's in the position as high priest, as God's fulfillment to his own oath. God said, I am going to do this, and I swear that I will do this. He made an oath with Israel that he would send a Savior, and he gave them Jesus, the fulfillment of that promise. He is the guarantor, or it's a big word. He's like the creator or the sustainer, kind of combining both of those, of a new and better covenant. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. There is nothing that you or I bring to the table that is not going to be covered by the work that Jesus did on the cross and raising from the dead. Everything he is able to take care of. He's able to save us to the uttermost. He's making intercession for us forever. So he is stepping in on our behalf with God and saying, there with me. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. Jesus is kind of standing out a little bit, don't you think? It was not an amen. That was a really good moment for it. So uh, Jesus is really standing out here, don't you think? Hey, there we go. Uh, What else do we learn about Jesus? Well, he is perfect, and he has brought to completion the work that he was sent to do. He completed it forever. Now, I want you to see verse 28. It does say, which came later than the law, this oath, and it appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. It does not mean Jesus was not perfect, and then somehow he did something on earth and it made him perfect. This is kind of that other side of the word perfect that we were looking at. He brought it to a completion. He brought it to the end that it was working towards. And then it goes on in chapter 8, confirming what I just said. Jesus has made the final sacrifice, and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty. He is seated. The job's done. He doesn't have to get up to make more sacrifices. He made the last sacrifices. He, last sacrifice. He sat down. It's done. It's complete. It has reached its end. Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is ministering in the true and holy places. He has put his law in our minds and in our hearts. He is our God. We have become his people. He reveals himself to us so much so that we can say, I know him. Will Farrell, I know you're all thinking, I know him. He is merciful to our sins. He has made the old law obsolete. In verse 6, chapter 8, it makes it really clear. Jesus' ministry is greater. Jesus' covenant is greater. Jesus' promises are greater. So 
our author is grabbing these examples and he is saying, remember these guys? Remember this system? Remember Melchizedek? Now, remember how you tried it for your whole life and it still didn't work? Well, it was never going to work. It was never meant to work. And its goal was to point you forward to a grace, a righteousness, a hope, a priest, a peace, a king that was coming. If Jesus' ministry, covenant, and promises are greater, what are you going to go back to? If Jesus is greater, what are you going back to? Is it worth it? Is he worth it? Yes! He is worthy. He is not just writing this. The author of Hebrews, God working through the author of Hebrews, is not just working through this very Jewish story by talking about Melchizedek and talking about the Old Covenant and saying Jesus is worthwhile and Jesus is good just for them in that unique context. No. What Jesus accomplished is complete for all of us. For all of time, he is worthy for us. And so, now, we don't just have to look back in Hebrews and say, well, do I have to become a Jew first and become a part of a different culture and then find my way to Jesus? No. Everything that you previously ran to in your life, whether it's other religions, other gods, whether it is other people, You went to them because they, you thought they were worthy of your time and your attention. Maybe you ran after some different philosophies or ideas. This is the thing that's going to save me. These are the people who have all the answers that I've needed. Maybe it's a political party. Everything is screwed up, but this political party, insert name of candidate, is going to take care of it for me. We, as humans, run and worship so many things and so many people that are not worthy. He is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And he asks us to consider him. So today, let's look to Jesus. Let us consider him. Here's my challenge for you today. These two chapters were laden. Amy, if you could put up those descriptions of Jesus all on the one slide. I feel this is overwhelming. This is who the Jesus that we serve is. It really is like a tidal wave coming at us. And if you were to look at that, I want you to then compare other things in your life that you are running towards, that you are believing in, that you are worshiping, that you are saying, I think this is the thing that is going to really unlock my life for me. It's going to be this thing, this job, this person, this idea, this philosophy. This is it. This is what I need to be running to. And we have that list that says, actually, it's Jesus. Consider him. He is worthy. So my encouragement this week to you is go into your life. Take five, ten minutes or longer. Ask God, Lord, what am I running to? 
to save me other than you? Who am I running to to save me other than you? Christians, this question is for you. Please do not think. This is a question I'm saying to the people who don't yet know Jesus. And they're like, oh, yeah, I do need Jesus. This is a question for me. This is a question for us. Are there things that we are running to that we are saying through our actions, this is more worthy than Jesus? Because this is going to give me what Jesus can't. Jesus is worthy. Would you all pray with me? Lord, this is a task that I have just asked everybody to do that we are desperate for you to answer us in. We need you to show up. Because frankly, Lord, we've been running to lots of stuff aside from you for a long time. And we've been leaning on things other than you for a long time. Jesus, you are worthy. You are our hope and you are what draws us into a relationship with God the Father. Jesus, you are God and you are good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for stepping in and bringing us to you. Lord, in your grace, answer our call. Show us what we have been running to and we have been trying to worship that is inferior because, Lord, you are greater. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray.